I'll be reading from verses 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God who gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. May have a seat. Thank you, Marty. Marty is one of our ministering elders. Uh, in the first service, we actually, as a part of our process um, for selection of elders and deacons here at Cornerstone, um, our leadership structure, we have elders and deacons, uh, ministering elders and deacons that serve three-year terms. And so every year, we have six of them. Every year, uh, two deacons and two elders will be going off, and two more um, that have been nominated uh, come on. And so in the first service, um, we actually uh, appointed uh, Richard Chandler and Case Fifeisen Jr. as deacons. And then we selected from three nominees, incredible candidates, um, and we selected Mike DeAger and Brad Schnorr um, as, uh, as the ministering elders. And Matt's, Matt, Matt's name was not selected. We select by lot uh, where we uh, pray over those names. Every candidate is qualified and has been interviewed and nominated by the congregation. And then we trust the Lord to kind of lead us in that. If you have any questions about that process, please feel free to talk to me. Um, but we're super excited just uh, for Mike and Matt coming on, and Mark Wolfschirndl is going off. Uh, he is completing his term, so please come see him. Make sure you say thanks to him um, for his time as an elder. That was a mouthful. There's still a lot more to be said. Would you please pray with me? Read from God's word and learn from him. God, thank you this morning. I feel like I've already been blessed so much just with the songs that we sang, with 
hearing from the Christian schools and praying with Pastor Doug over our education, God, and just, it is so comforting, Lord, to know that in these times that you are king, that you reign, that you're in control, that you are sovereign, God. And right now we know, God, with all the things that are going on, I pray, Lord, that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace. I pray, Lord, that as we look at Genesis 3, God, that you would give me wisdom and focus, speak what you would have me say. God, there's like 10 sermons in this. I pray that your sermon will be preached. I pray that your word will be preached, God. I ask that you would guard my mouth from anything that is not from you. I pray that you would give us a focus, God. That we would lean forward in our chairs or our pews and that we would be eager and excited to hear from you. And then for each of us in our particular circumstances, God, I pray that by your spirit you would speak into our hearts. That your gospel would continue to strengthen, would continue to train, and would continue to correct us. And, that, and we give this time to you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for the truth that we are all who put their faith in you by your grace, children, your children, heirs. May we know that. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Galatians. If you are new or visiting or haven't been in a while, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. And today, we are in the second part of Galatians chapter 3. Now, last week, Doug really got after it as he was talking about what it means to have gospel faith. Having faith. Faith, gospel faith, and the difference, and we we're having this conversation about how law and faith go together, and we're continuing that conversation in Galatians chapter 3. And in, as we dig into this, I think that this text, once again, is so relevant as it always is to our times. In this text, Paul is Speaking to Gentiles and Jews, particularly the Jews that are having this issue with being a church, a, a church of one. They want these Gentiles to be circumcisers, to do all of these ceremonial laws, to be a part of the church. They believe in the gospel, they don't deny the gospel, but they also want them to follow all of these ways. And Paul is laying out his argument for why the gospel is enough. And how you should not add on to the gospel. And he's helping the people to understand a, a proper lens and understanding of how the law, the Torah, the Old Testament, God's message of what it, of what it takes to be in his presence in a relationship with him, how that relates to the gospel of grace. So he is speaking in to them. And as we think about this, the well, reason why I think this is so relevant is the implication, the conclusion that he gets that we're going to land on. And I want to just read to you the conclusion that he gets to, and then we're going to take the journey to get to this conclusion, but I want to kind of frame this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. He declares this truth. Now in today's day and age, in 2020, when there is an election year, when there is so much conversation on masks or, un, or no masks, on conspiracy theories, on Republican and Democrat, on Black Lives Matter, on in insert whatever the conversations are being had, oftentimes, I don't know about you, but as I look at my feeds or I think about my, my friends or people that I know that are Christians, when I read this text, I wonder, is that true? Are we one? Is the church one? Am I unified? If Paul was writing this today in 2020, does it still apply in 2020? Does it apply in the age of a pandemic? Does it apply in the age of all of this social justice and all of these conversations that are being had in the age of progressivism? Does it apply? And I think it applies so much. And it is for us, and we need it today to correct us and encourage us and strengthen us and motivate us. Because everybody, everywhere else, we're talking about this. And we also need to be having these conversations right here in church, especially as we're preaching through a book and these truths are coming out. So this implication of gospel unity in Christ, I think, is so important, and we're going to get there, but I wanted to kind of set you up, because i got a lot to say, and so I want you to be at the edge of your seat. With that said, as we think about this idea, what Paul is getting at today is he is telling the church that there's this gospel promise. He's talking about a promise, and the promise that he's talking about goes all the way back to Abraham. And what he's saying as the people try to understand how law and gospel relate and how our unity comes out of this promise is he wants the people to understand that the promise leads the way to the good and beautiful life. The promise leads the way to the good and beautiful life. Here is what I mean. He opens up by saying, continuing his conversation from last week, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant, a covenant is a promise, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. What he's talking about here is the promise that God made to Father Abraham way back in Genesis. And as we, yeah, Genesis, and as we think about the promises of God, and we think about the promise, what is the promise? Well, I'm happy you asked that question. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, and I want to read to you so that you can understand the promises of God. It says this. 
says, now the Lord said to Abram, God shows up to Abram. And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, all the nations, all the different tribes, all the different languages, every person will be blessed, Abraham. You will be blessed, and those that curse you will be cursed, but through your line, through my presence, God is saying this into Abram, the nations, all people will be blessed. And when Paul is talking about a promise, he's talking about Abraham. And what he wants them to understand here in Galatians is we try to understand, uh, Galatians 3 is a hard chapter. Can we just acknowledge that? As we read Galatians 3, it's a lot to digest. It's a lot, this, it's almost like reading a court case at times. And, and how does the law and justified and, and how does it all work together? But I think as we understand this, what I want us to, what I want us to glean from this is first this truth. That the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise of grace, leads the way to the good and beautiful life. This is why in verse 18, Paul says, for if the inheritance, that's the good and beautiful life, that is life with God, that's a part of his family, the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul wants the people to know as they're thinking about this conversation that, that, that the promise came by grace. And, the, and that it was not till 430 years later that the law came through Moses. If you know the story of Abraham, you know that the promise that was ratified just a few chapters later in chapter 15. In chapter 15, God shows up and, and, and says, I'm going to ratify. There's a contract that is being done. And for us, when we have a contract, what do we do? When you get married, you sign a wedding license, right? You sign a marriage license. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew times, there was this ceremony that would happen where you would go and get animals and you would cut them in half, and then you would, as a sign of, of your commitment to each other, you would walk through the animals that were cut in half. And in essence, you would say, if I break this covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And in, in Genesis chapter 15, what happens to Abraham is he comes into a dream, and he has a vision, and God says, Abraham, I want you to, to, to get animals, and he's thinking, okay, he's going to have a contract, he's gonna, he, we're going to do this, I'm going to walk through the animals, cut the animals in half, and then in this vision, what happens? Does Abraham, we think Abraham's about to walk through this, what happens? It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking 
fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these places, pieces. This was the very presence of God. We call it a theophany. And we would think that Abraham would have been the one to pass through. But in the story, God passes through and makes this one-way covenant with Abraham. He says, if, if, if this is broken, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And we know that this is, this is anticipating Jesus. And we see the grace here. What's interesting here is that they're having this conversation about circumcision and, and, all this, and, and, and whether the, the Gentiles need to be circumcised. And in this story, when God has this covenant with the people, the covenant of grace comes before the circumcision. Abraham was actually technically a Gentile. And then he was circumcised after. And so God, Paul wants the people to know that the gospel of grace leads the way. The promise leads the way. So what do we do with the law? What do we do with the law that was given by Moses? It says that in, in here he, he's referred to as the intermediary. intermediary. What do we do with the law? Well, Paul anticipates that. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. But the scriptures, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What do we do with the law? Do we reject it then? Is the law then useless? No. Paul wants the people to understand the way that the gospel and the law relate to each other is that the law reveals sin's hold apart from the promise. The law reveals sin's hold. He uses the language of imprisonment apart from the promise. It, as Doug talked about, it crushes you. You realize, you realize that there is a law that you fall short of. This is why in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. By no means. The law is not sinful. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, you have to train and it teaches us what sin is. To understand this or help you illustrate this, just think about your kids. Do you have to teach your kids what sin is? I know I have to teach my kids the law. I know my kids do not know Maybe your kids are different, but my kids do not know that they don't come first. For some reason, they like to punch each other in the face. I have three boys and two really spunky little girls. We have to learn that there's this sin and God's way and God's law is elevated and, and, and sin has a hold on us. And even as families, as we raise our kids to understand these truths. To understand 
that the law reveals sin, not mistakes. Sin against a holy and just God. And even in the law, as we think about the law, there's grace. Grace and law go together. If you go and read the Old Testament law, you'll see that there's, that there's a temple and that there's sacrifices everywhere. Why? Why did God have his people have a day of atonement? Because he knew that they would fall short. He knew that we could not measure up, that we don't have the ability to perfectly follow the law. And he, but, but it starts with the promise. And the law truly should lead us to the promise. It should remind us about who the promise is for. Martin Luther said this, the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin that by the knowledge they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so to come to that blessed seed. As Paul is working his way through Galatians chapter 3, he wants the people to understand that the promise leads the way, that the law leads the way back to the promise. But hear this, the promise is not a, a place. The promise is not a position. The promise is not something you get. The promise is a person. The third point is Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the promise and through him we are free to do good. Through him, we are free to do good. We're no longer imprisoned. This is why when Paul says, he's going back to the promise of Abraham and the offspring, he says, the offspring is not plural, it's singular. It's anticipating the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's saying in the Torah, it anticipates the gospel that Jesus is coming and he is the promise. And because of him, we are Free to do good. It's not even about I have to anymore. It's about I want to. Do you see the difference? Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, because he paid the price, he paid it all, he was my atonement, my faith in him as the object of my faith, Jesus himself my personal savior, I have freedom then to follow. I am free to follow. This is why 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. I think I use this verse all the time because it's like my favorite. It's basically saying all of the Old Testament finds its answers in Jesus. Paul wants you to know that. He wants us to have that hermeneutic and that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. And Paul in this passage wants the people to know this truth. He wants them to understand that we were held, verse 23, under the law. We were imprisoned. We were in captivity until the coming faith would be, be revealed. So that when the law, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by what? Our works? No, by faith. 
but now. Paul loves using that language, but now. That faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all what? Sons and daughters of God. The song that we sang, I am a child of God. And all of that is to get to this gospel implication. And this was just the introduction for this point right now. Paul proclaims this gospel. He wants the people to know this truth. That the promise of Jesus Christ leads the way to the good and beautiful life. And life in Christ is good and beautiful. And then the implication, he says this. As many as there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are co-heirs according to the promise. The gospel promise implication here. In light of this truth that we just got, hear this church, hear this world, is that the church is one family. The church is one family. Those that are in Christ, that identity as his children transcends all other identities. It transcends political parties. It transcends social movements. It transcends whether you wear a mask or whether you don't. It transcends someone who has wronged you. It transcends somebody who thinks differently than you. If you are in Christ, that person is also in Christ. You are a brother and a sister together. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Even the language of calling each other brother and sister, we lose the significance of why the church has called each other brother and sister because the gospel tells us to. Because the gospel tells you, this is who you are. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. I want to read this to you. It says this, when it comes to this hostility that was once between different races that was in the church. It says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Chapter 2, verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, what? The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile, reconcile us both to who? To God in one body through what? The cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace, shalom to you, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. The far off would be the Gentiles, and near would be the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then hear this, so then, this is the implication, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Does that say you're just a part of, of, a, of, of a church body or you're just a part of, of a religion? No, you're a part of a family. And you're heirs. You have an identity. And an heir implies responsibility. This is why you're free to follow. Do you see that? 
This is what he's getting at here. But I want us to understand here, when we talk about unity, the unity must be in Christ. It is not in any other ideology. If our unity is in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will fall. And the Lord may even destroy it. Look at the story of Babel. There was great unity amongst humanity in the story of Babel. Do you remember the story in Genesis? All of the people came together and they say, let's build up a tower to reach up to God. And what happened? They were in unity against God. And what did God do? He separated them and gave them different languages and brought them into confusion. And ethnicities grew out of that. But then you look at Pentecost, the reverse Babel. When people came together in Christ in light of the gospel, in light of the promise that we know is promised, in light of who Jesus is, and, and the Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 1, and they were all speaking the same language. And they were united together. Because they were united in Christ. And I, as we think about this as a church, I think this is so huge. What are we united in? You know, in 2020, um, 2010, it was a great year. The year the Giants won the World Series. Good year. So was 12, so was 14. In those years, I remember going to games. Going to games and being with people that were very different than me, that looked different than me that have much different ideologies than me, some people that smoked some things beforehand that I wasn't too sure about. But in those games, there was like this camaraderie and this unity, and I was given high fives and even hugs. I know hugs are like, you don't do that these days. But, but we were so unified, and then you showed up to the, to the World Series parade, and, the, and San Francisco was full of people. And they were so unified into, under this championship. And how much more should the church be unified under the gospel of grace? How much more is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, shedding his righteous blood for me so that I could be his child, something that should unify me with my brother or my sister that may think differently, vote differently, live differently than me? It must. And the question is, what do we do? How do we do this, Paul? I don't understand why this person thinks this way or posts this thing or says these things. Or I can't be unified with them. Well, in your flesh you can't. But I think that Paul gives us some very important insights. And I want to really quickly work with you through Ephesians chapter 4 as we think as a church what it means to be unified. Please stay with me. This is so important. Paul here is talking about unity. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. As we think about what we do, church, the first thing I think we want to understand is we are called to walk in Christ 
together. Every single word there is important. Walk. That involves movement. That involves progress. That involves, remember, in Christ we are free to follow. That involves following. It's not sitting on our hands. With. It's with Christ. Christ is in everyone by his spirit. He is the one who unifies us and we do it together. And maybe you're thinking like me, great, Logan, that's great. How? How do we walk together? Let's keep reading. With all humility and gentleness. I know, we want, with a really strong word, I know we want, with a, with a knockout KO punch, The ways of King Jesus are with humility and gentleness. I didn't say soft. I think humility and gentleness is one of the strongest attributes of a man or woman of God. Humility and gentleness. I just learned this this week. Did you know that gentle and lowly The peace is, is, is where Jesus' heart is. Did you know that in Scripture, Jesus talks about who he is. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I'm the gate. He talks about who he is. But there's only one place where he talks about his heart. Did you know this? There's one place in all Scripture that he talks about his heart. He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a good word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here it is, gentle and lowly, humble. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is Christ, is light. Church, walk with Christ together in gentleness and humility. And as we think about that, that speaks into the way that we interact with each other. That speaks into the posts on Facebook or the text messages or the links that I send or the, as we try to process what's going on together. But also, he keeps going with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience. Fruit of the Spirit, patience. Bearing with one another. Way too often, I know I'm guilty of this, when I think about what is going on? I am really quick to speak and really slow to listen. And I think a lot of these conversations need to be dealt with by having conversations face to face. When a brother or sister says something that you don't agree with, when a brother or sister, Christian, shares something that is hard, I think the right response is, hey, could we get some lunch? Could we talk about that? And especially when there's pain, to say, I just want to bear this with you. I may not understand it, but I just want to bear this with you. And I think when it comes to like the Black, the black Lives Matter or, or, or some of the, the, the pain in our country right now, I think that this speaks into this. 
That when you speak into a brother or a sister, you listen that there's very real pain. And as we think about this conversation, I must say, I want to bear this with you, or also, I want to help you to bear this. We are pretty prideful people. And I, and, I, and I can be quick to say that, yeah, I'll love to bear your load with you. But I got this load by myself, right? And it's a two-way, it's a togetherness that we must bear with one another. And finally, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, brothers and sisters, as we work towards unity, towards being together, I want you to understand something. In your flesh, by yourself, this is impossible. You cannot be unified. But, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh, the flesh who I am. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, by his spirit, we can be unified. It's a miracle. And we get glimpses of that. When we see God's people you unified together and talking together and doing so with humility and gentleness and bearing with one another and saying we are going after this unity and that is hard and it is messy and it is beautiful. This is what we're after. And so as we think about this, as we read this in Galatians chapter 3, I think we should... as. I think we should read this through this lens. The promise is so good and so important. I would imagine if Paul was writing this today, he would say there is neither black or white. There is neither Republican or Democrat. He would say there is neither male or female. He would say... There is neither rich or poor. We'd say we are all one in Christ Jesus. Unity. So as we strive towards that, what do we do? I think we have these conversations. Probably not to preach too long, but I just got to read to you Revelation chapter 19. Hear this real quickly as we think about this. Stay with me. I want you to understand the glory that comes. I want you to know that someday we will be unified completely and totally. And I want to read this to you, and I want you to picture this. And then I want us as a church to sing. You remember the Father Abraham song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. That's the response. My identity is in Christ. 
And in this identity, hear this truth. I'm just going to read it and try not to expand on it. Then I heard, this is a prophecy of what is to come, of, of what we have in heaven waiting for us in glory. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude. The great multitude is many tribes, many nations, many languages, all together unified in Christ. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty people. Peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah. That's praise Yahweh. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He is king. He is Lord. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you not see this? And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. There is unity. And we as the bride run after that with humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity by the Spirit which gives us the bond of peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, there's just so much in Galatians chapter 3, God. I thank you that you fed us today with this and also that you've given us a lot to think about, Lord. And I know there's so much more in here, Lord. And I know that all of us are, are, are dealing with all the things in our world right now. But God, I pray that we would be a people that live in victory. That we would be a people that are unified together by the gospel and the gospel alone. That we would be a people that sing together unified. And Lord, that we would get those moments, those glimpses where your kingdom breaks in and we get a taste of what is to come. We get a taste of, of what, what, who we already are. We pray, Lord, that we would embrace the identity as brothers and sisters in Christ and that that would transcend every other identity that it would transcend every other ideology. And we just declare, God, that everything, all of those things, we, it all submits to you. So we invite you to reign, we invite you to rule, and spirit, we pray that you would give us wisdom in knowing how to be unified and how to accomplish this. And as our response, we sing of your grace.